Okay, good, good evening everybody and a warm welcome to um, this um, plenary lecture um, which Jean Howard is going to speak to us. Um, Jean Howard is the George Delacourt Professor in the Humanities at Columbia University where she teaches early modern literature, Shakespeare, feminist studies and theatre history. And Jean has authored over a remarkable over 50 essays. Um, her books include Shakespeare's Art of Orchestration, Stage Technique and Audience Response, The Stage and Social Struggle in Early Modern England, the foundation book for, for me, um, Engendering a Nation, a feminist account of Shakespeare's English history, another foundation book for me, co-written with Phyllis Rackin, and then more recently, Theatre of a City, The Places of London Comedy in 2007, and that one won the Barnard Hewitt Prize for outstanding work in theatre history for 2008. Jean went on to do Marx and Shakespeare in the Great Shakespearean series in 2012, which was co-written with Crystal Bartolovich. And in addition, um, Professor Howard has been one of the co-editors of the Norton Shakespeare and general editor of the Bedford Contextual Editions of Shakespeare, um, for which Pamela Allen Brown, um, she worked with Pamela Allen Brown on editing As You Like It. She's edited seven collections of essays and re has received Guggenheim, ACLS, um, NEH, Huntington, Folger and Newbury Library Fellowships. Um, Professor Jean Howard has received several awards for her teaching and mentoring of graduate students and she's directed over 50 doctoral dissertations. So what a super, I mean we're just very grateful that Jean has had the time during all this work to, to come and speak to us today. She's at the moment completing a new book, um, carrying on from her interest in, in history, called Staging History, Forging the Body Politic. And this book explores Shakespeare's history plays as sort of dynamic precursors of modern and contemporary stagings of national history. And it charts the various ways in which playwrights of the 20th and the 21st century have used the history play to dissect, to critique, and to reimagine the acceptable contours of the body politic. So that idea of the, the body politic not just being part of the early modern period, but coming right up to date now. And in the book, um, Jean's been working on British writers like um, Howard Brenton and Carol Churchill, but she's also been covering American drama, so Tony Kushner, Suzanne Laurie Parks, and August Wilson are featuring this book, so I think it's going to be brilliant, um, and very much look forward to it. So would you join me in welcoming Jean? Thank you all, it's been a really long day, so I'm grateful that anybody stayed to listen at all. Uh, today I'm gonna to talk about playing history at the Rose. As theater historians have long acknowledged, the period between 1587, a year, the year of the Rose's construction, and 1594, the year the Admiral's men and the Lord Chamberlain's men reorganized theater personnel into two dominant companies, was a particularly confusing and turbulent time. Playwrights and actors moved frequently between the Queen's men, Worcester's men, Sussex, Pembroke, and Strange's men. Some actors traveled extensively on the continent. 
In this context, it's hard to say what it meant to stage history at the Rose in the early years of its existence, and especially before the clarity afforded after Henslow's diary began to make the contours of the ongoing Rose repertory more apparent. But one of my arguments in this paper will be that at no point can one speak of playing history at the Rose outside a much larger theatrical context. What happened on its stage was determined in part by what was happening elsewhere in a theater culture that, as we are now able to understand, was unusually porous and interactive, and only with some violence to known facts able to be organized neatly under authorial names, company repertories, or theater buildings, especially in the early years. Part one, variations on the history play. Brian Walsh has argued that for Shakespeare, the Elizabethan history play was largely fashioned by the Queen's men. His evidence, implicitly working within a Shakespeare-focused paradigm, comes from the fact that one can trace the influence of their true tragedy of Richard III on his Richard III, their King Lear on his King Lear, their troublesome reign of John, King of England, on his King John, and their famous victories of Henry V on his one and two Henry IV and Henry V. Walsh even goes so far as to embrace the speculation broached by Anthony Burgess and many others that Shakespeare began his career as an actor with the Queen's men and so had a particularly close relationship with their repertory in the 1580s. There are, of course, other ways to explain Shakespeare's familiarity with plays associated with the Queen's company, including avid spectatorship. But I am more interested here in what Scott McMillan and Sally Beth McLean note in their work on the Queen's men and that is the many types of history plays associated with that company that don't so directly anticipate Shakespeare, that, but they can be found in some abundance in what we can reconstruct of the plays that subsequently appeared on the Rose stage. McLean and Macmillan note, for example, <clears throat> the Queen's staging of plays such as Salimus, the prologue of which says that, quote, no feigned toy nor forged tragedy, gentles we here present unto your view, but a most lamentable history, which this last age acknowledgeth for true. The quarto title page identifies Salimus as, quote, sometimes emperor of the Turks and grandfather to him that now reigneth. Using the criterion of truth to give precedent to the designator history over tragedy, Green here uses history in the sense highlighted by the OED's first definition as, quote, a written narrative constituting a continuous chronological record of important or public events, especially in a particular place, or of a particular trend institution or person's life, common in the title of books. Or its second definition, a narration of incidents, professedly true ones, a narrative or story. Salimus, like Tamburlaine, a Marlowe play that's made its way to the Rose stage, or like the two-part Tamar Cam, now lost, which also played at the Rose, belonged to what eventually emerged as a discernible subgenre of Eastern tyrant plays, tragical in feel, but historical in their claim to represent an actual account of the region and its rulers. But Maclean and Macmillan also single out King Lear as a Queen's Men history play interested in the ancient matter of Britain rather than the monarchical politics of late medieval England and point to Cleomen and Clamides and the old wives' tale as staging a mythic past, either from folklore or chivalric romance. 
They further identify the companies Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay as a comic history that takes the reign of Henry III as its ostensible setting and when not representing the magical feats of English dons, deals with the education of Prince Edward. Distracted by an infatuation with Margaret, the fair maid of Freshingfield, Edward nearly forfeits a proper dynastic marriage to Eleanor of Castile. What Maclean and Macmillan show us, I would suggest, and will elaborate below, is that the category history as a designator of a certain kind of stage play was a varied and unstable entity around 1592. It took a long time before the 1623 first folio even organized a group of Shakespeare's English histories under that rubric. In the complicated theater culture of the early 90s, many seemingly different kinds of drama might reasonably have a claim to the status of history plays if they dealt with the past and to some extent with what is true, not merely feigned, though one has to allow for a fairly elastic sense of truth in particular cases. The past engaged by such plays included classical antiquity, pre-Christian Britain, late medieval England, 16th century France, and even representations of events in the near past of contemporary London, as I will suggest below. From scrutinizing reconstructions of the repertory of plays put on at the Rose between 1587 and about 1600, one can argue that history broadly construed was a primary subject matter in that venue as it surely was in early modern theater culture writ large. The variety of historical topics and different conventions by which they were organized troubles any easy, easy sense that the Rose focused only on Marlowe-inflected Eastern histories of rant, stalking, and bombast, while the theater focused on Shakespeare-inflected, verbally intricate, medieval English monarch plays. While we know that the Chamberlain's Men historical repertory contained more than Shakespeare-style history plays, we know a lot more about what was staged at the Rose largely because of Henslow. Working with tools such as his diary, Gurr's account of the Admiral's Men repertory, and Martin Wiggins' catalog of the plays of the 1580s and 90s, one can suggest the following typology with some very big uncertainties about the exact content of lost plays, of which there are many, many. And I invite you to alter my typology in any way you think works. One, that among the Rose's historical plays, there were a number of what we would call chronicle histories dealing with English kings, such as the lost Bellendune of 1594 that Wiggins describes as set in the 11th or 12th century in dealing with Henry I's punishment of Bellendune, who stole a ring the king had affixed to a staple, thus earning himself the dubious honor of being the first thief ever hanged in England. In the same category, we could place Peel's Longshanks or Edward I, 1592, a lost play on Henry V, 1595, we're not quite sure of its relationship to uh, the existing uh, Henry plays, a lost play on the life and death of Henry I, 1597, a lost play on the funeral of Richard Coeur de Lyon, 1598, Sir John Oldcastle by Drayton, Hathaway, Mundy, and Wilson, one we do have, uh, a lost play to Henry the Richmond, uh, to Henry Richmond, 1599, and that's among others. Two, that there were also a handful of Eastern histories, including, of course, Tamburlaine, for which at the Rose, 
Henslow famously provided the famous coat with copper lace, breeches of, of crimson silver, and that uh, bridle which he presumably used to guide his human horses across the stage. But there were also the two lost plays of Tamar Khan as well as the Battle of Alcazar fought in Barbary between Sebastian, king of Portugal, and Abdulmelik, king of Morocco, with the death of Captain Stukely. This is the play in which Allen is presumed to have played Muli Mohammed, the overreaching Moroccan usurper and king murderer who ends up flayed and his hide stuffed with straw as a warning against unlawful ambition. These are all great plays, by the way. <laughs> Three more numerous, however, were works dealing with classical history. Caesar and Pompey, a lost play of 1594. Diocletian, a lost play of 1594, depicting the rise of Diocletian from the rank of a common soldier in Gaul to be emperor and his persecution of Christians. Chettle's Catiline's Conspiracy of 1598, lost. Chettle's Troy's Revenge, 1599, lost. Decker's Orestes Fiorenz, or the Tragedy of Agamemnon, 1600, lost. And two lost plays of Fair Constance of Rome by Mundi, Drayton, and Hathaway. Again, we have almost none of these plays. I'd love to know what they looked like. I always feel that when I go through the lost plays list. Four, several plays on recent continental history. Marlowe's Massacre at Paris, which Chris Fitter just talked about. And perhaps three plays on the civil wars of France by various combinations of Decker, Chettle, Wilson, and Drayton uh, uh, performed around 1598, all of them now lost. Five, plays on the early matter of Britain. Vortigan, 1596, now lost, that covers the same fifth century history as Middleton's 1615 Hengus, in which, in fact, Wiggins speculates may be the same play. Hathaway's lost King Arthur, 1598, and The Conquest of Brute, a lost play of 1598 by Day Chettle Mundy Drayton, for which Henslow gave money to, quote, buy diverse things for to make coats for giants in brute. Six, plays on biblical history, though most of those are recorded after 1600. Seven and last, some plays that are hard to define but might fall into the general category of popular histories, such as the famous history of the life and death of Captain Stukely with his marriage to Alderman Curtis's daughter and the valiant ending of his life at the Battle of Alcazar, 1596. That play dramatizes the life of a swashbuckling English adventurer as he abandons a London marriage to pursue fame and fortune in Ireland, Rome, Spain, and finally dies at the Battle of Alcazar. His ordinary life rendered extraordinary by becoming intertwined with some of the signal events of England's attempt to fight off threats from the Catholic powers of Europe. In this category, we might place the downfall and then the death of Robert Earl of Huntington, those two very odd plays by Mundy and Chettle of 1598 in which the popular hero Robin Hood is severed from the feats of woodland prowess celebrated in ballads and other Robin Hood entertainments and instead becomes an earl while Marion is transformed into the chaste Matilda. Both are martyred by John. The Shoemaker's Holiday, usually considered an early city comedy, could be seen as a popular history since it deals with the rise of a noted city worthy, Simon Eyre, and his building of Leadenhall, much as Haywood was later to dramatize the rise of Sir Thomas Gresham and his building of the Royal Exchange. Now the tenuousness of this last grouping, the number of objections one could raise about it, 
suggests just how hard it is to capture the reality of what it might have meant to stage history at the Rose in the 1590s. Most of us trained with Shakespeare at the forefront of our consciousness have tacitly absorbed the assumption that the history found, play found its telos in his kind of monarchical story. But even the foregoing rough and ready trot through the repertory of plays pretty certainly staged at the Rose in between 1587 and 1600 suggests that as was true in the culture at large, playwrights had a pretty Catholic view of what kind of historical matter might be made into effective theater. They looked back to Rome, to the early matter of Britain, to the medieval period, to fairly recent continental events, and to the actions of certain of their non-noble countrymen who dominated city chronicles or became caught up in world historical events in striking and unexpected ways like Stukely, or perhaps had only a mythical existence but a vividly realized one, such as Robin Hood. But to go further toward explaining what it meant to play history at the Rose in the 1590s, I want to draw on three terms that have been useful to me in thinking about how history was thought and practiced on the stage. These terms include a familiar one, certainly, genre, a perhaps slightly less familiar one, intertheatricality, and a third, community of practice that may be a newer addition to theater history discussions. Together, they help me understand why playing history at the Rose meant engaging with history written for other stages and the particularly porous and unstable boundaries, yet the unmistakable stage durability and vitality of various kinds of historical drama. Part two, terms. The Renaissance knew the utility of generic kinds to distinguish in a relational field one type of writing from another. Writers and printers on title pages and in treatises regularly divided tra tragedies and comedies, pastorals and georgics, odes from sonnets, and these generic extinct, uh, distinctions did much of the same work then that they do now. They enabled readers or spectators to have specific expectations about a given text. They served as advertisements, and they let those readers be, uh, appreciate or be surprised by variations in traditional forms. For writers, generic templates enabled both imitation and innovation. Generic distinctions were not then or now essential, universal, or mutable, but fluid and influenced by a wide variety of social and literary pressures. And often it was only in retrospect that a label got applied to a set of recurring textual conventions, as when the first folio made a history genre of a group of Shakespeare plays that had been variously classified in prior decades. But I suggest that in the 1590s, to think of staged histories in relation to that much later generic classification belies the reality of theatrical practice. Instead, within the overarching and open-ended category of historical drama, a number, a number of distinct subgenres were being elaborated in performance and were available to dramatists working in a variety of settings and for a variety of companies. What held these subgenres together, whether or not they had recognizable names like classical history, were the theatrical practices and conventions that were shared among them. Marlowe's overreaching rhetoric, for example, is an iterable and easily recognized aspect of the Eastern tyrant play in both its straight Tamburlaine and its satiric Blindbaker of Alexandra forms. Rather than of thinking of a single generic category, the history play in the 1590s, we might think of this more fluid set of subgenres that is nonetheless held together by particular conventions and recognizable elements. They display what I'm calling intertheatrical linkages 
that simultaneously point to past theatrical events and open the way for new variations. I draw this term from William West's work on the topic, though he owes much to Diana Taylor's concept of an implicit performance repertory that supplements, though is not entirely distinct from, the written archive of printed texts. West argues that to understand early modern theater culture, we should pay less attention to plays as whole forms and more to what he calls the, quote, horizontally organized repertoire, never completed and slowly changing of lines, gestures, characters, situations, genres, and other smaller elements that cumulatively allow for new performances and new concatenations of actions. He takes as his introductory example the blow that Prince Hal supposedly gave the Chief Justice, an actual action verbally referenced in the Henriad several times, but having its only documented stage execution in the much earlier famous victories. The blow also features in Tartan's Jess in a humorous account of a particularly complex reenactment of it at a performance at the Bull in Bishopsgate. As Tartan describes the moment, he played both the part of the Chief Justice receiving the blow and then a clown who enters a moment later and asks what news of the other actors, only to be told that Prince Henry had just hit the Justice a terrible blow on the ear, to which Tartan replied that it was a terrible thing to strike a judge and says he is so terrified by the report that it is as if he felt the blow still stinging on his own cheek, which of course it was. West speculates that the blow had so entered popular theater-going consciousness that the memory of it lingered in later performances, even when it was not literally performed, that it became a kind of element ripe for innovation. It enabled jests, it invited variations, it instigated and supplemented written reports. Elaborating on the prevalence of such inter-theatrical elements in theater construction, West offers a simple but suggestive taxonomy of possibilities. Iterable performance elements ranging from smaller to larger unit, units include, for example, instances at the level of the sound or phoneme, sa-sa-sa, the line, Hieronymo's mad again, the gesture, stalking, giving the fig, or the genre or subgenre, revenge play, prodigal son play. And you can collapse and expand this, you know, like an accordion. Often, he argues, title pages record references to these iterable, separate elements of performance when they speak of the humors of, or the swaggering vein of, particular characters like Falstaff or Ancient Pistol. These record acting styles as much as specific verbal content, pointing to the performance pleasures offered by skilled actors who personated humors and conceits and Cambyses vein with gusto, activating memories of earlier performances in the same mode and inviting further elaborations and innovations on them. <clears throat> These performance elements became, substantially and materially, the markers by which audiences recognized and dramatists and audiences created the subgenres of all theater events, including the many forms of history enacted at the globe. But who were the people actually producing and participating in the theater culture I am describing? A culture in some ways very like and very different from theater culture today. Different most strikingly, perhaps, in the autonomy now regularly given to individuals to craft a play and a director to determine its theatrical shape. Even while we still continue to practice various forms of author-centric work, we now know that most aspects of playmaking were regularly parceled out among groups of people 
rather than remaining within the control of one figure in the early modern period. Whether we look at the work being done by Tiffany Stern or Gary Taylor or Rod Knudsen or many others, we see how social and collaborative an activity it was to make stage or involve an audience in a play in the early modern period. I want to suggest that we can usefully describe the network of those involved in such enterprises as members of a, particularly, a particular community of practice. The term was developed by anthropologists such as Etienne Winger in the 1990s to describe groups of people who practice a particular trade or craft skill and through informal modes of association learn from one another, gathering tacit as well as explicit information and knowledge. Skills may be acquired by observation, watching what an actor does or play a playmaker creates, by listening to the stories of other practitioners, shop talk in taverns, for example, or by inclusion in groups doing specific types of work, creating props, sewing costumes, writing an act or a set of scenes from a full-length plot developed by another dramatist one of those ideas that I think is alien to modern invention, but which we know happened all the time in the early modern theater. Community of practice captures much of what we know about how early modern theater worked. Writers for the commercial stage from the 1590s, typically based in London, though occasionally at the universities, often collaborated directly in writing plays. If affiliated with a particular theater company, as Shakespeare was after 1594, they could work closely with actors and other writers for that company, tailoring scripts for the strength of its personnel. Mary Bly, Lucy Monroe, Scott McMillan, and others have identified shared features of plays in the repertory of individual companies. Yet the community of practice in which dramatists participated was hardly, for most theatrical personnel, limited to sharing in the life of a particular company as a writer, actor, or shareholder. Actors and many writers also moved around, selling plays to many companies and collaborating with different dramatists when they did so. The community of practice encompassed the full ensemble of those producing plays for the London theater in each decade of its existence. Often it was plays put on by a rival company rather than one's own that spurred innovation. Both Roz Knudsen and Andy Gurr, for example, have compellingly traced the extensive co-awareness of the Admiral's men and the Chamberlain's men throughout the 1590s. In a kind of call-and-response fashion, those companies collectively produced clusters of plays, Turk plays, Falstaff Oldcastle plays, Robin Hood plays, Humor's plays, innovations in one repertory being answered by new plays in the other. Whether one characterizes this activity as the sign of company rivalry, which is our old story, or a shrewd marketing strategy to promote the products of a collectively burgeoning theater industry, which is Roz's theory, there is no doubt that dramatists who work for one company knew what dramatists in all the other companies were doing. The intensely social act of early modern playmaking involved dramatists, often working in direct collaboration with other playwrights, taking part in a rapidly evolving community of practice in which experiments with new subject matter, rhetorical styles, character types, setting, bodily gestures, plot memes, and scene construction were undertaken on a daily basis and then rippled through that community. Audiences, I would argue, were vital to the success of and should be theorized as part of these communities of practice. They too were constantly learning by watching, listening, and doing 
that is, egging on clowns, calling for beloved characters, plays, or actors, applauding a successful in innovation, or booing a stale and tedious repetition. It was their tacit and explicit knowledge of the contours of a rich theater culture that allowed dramatists to rely on intertheatrical elements to create and to innovate. Playmakers never started at the beginning. They were stepping into a stream of the already known and the already performed, and audiences stepped in with them. If dramatists and actors were practiced craftsmen who knew the repertory of performance, audiences were practiced spectators who drew on the same wellspring. I'm thinking about this in relationship to my own children and their relationship to theater. You know, why is it that in some families the children catch on to theater culture that their parents love? And it's hard. There are all the resistances to your children doing what you love. But also, if they have no theatrical literacy, theater isn't as much fun. That is, they have to know theater in order to love theater. So to get the beginnings of the literacy greatly sort of increases the interpretive value of theater going. So I've been working on that with my own children. <clears throat> to sum up here, I have been introducing some terms, genre, you already know, intertheatricality, community of practice, to help explain what I mean when I talk about playing history at the Rose. I don't think in the 1590s it's useful to concentrate on defining a richly elaborated single genre, the early modern history play. More useful is to look at a range of fluid subgenres defined primarily by the recurring intertheatrical elements found within each of them some of which had enormous staying power over not one theater season, but many, and which were the building blocks for ongoing writerly creativity and audience engagement. Collectively, audiences, actors, playwrights, the latter two categories often overlapping, theater managers, prop makers, and musicians formed a vibrant community of theatrical practice that had one of its most richly flourishing instantiations on the stages of 1590s London. And now I'm going to give you just one example. <clears throat> Part three, playing history at the Rose. I'm going to turn now to the comic history, Robert Greene's Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, probably composed around 1589 and 90, about which I've written more extensively elsewhere, but will serve here to make a couple of quick points about how an inter-theatrical element moves from one comic history to another in the 1590s. First, while Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, Bungay is a play whose early theatrical provenance is not perfectly clear, some assign it uh, to the Queen's men, others dispute that claim, it most certainly had a substantial life at the Rose, where Henslow rec records that it was performed four times in 1592, three more in 1593, and in 1594 it played twice by the United Queens and Sussex companies, also at the Rose, so long theatrical life. Its claim to be historical drama is, of course, tendentious, but I want to make an argument that it should be thought of in that light. Comic it certainly is, and it is to the comic vein of historical drama that it contributes. Based loosely on a prose romance, the famous history of Fire Bacon, a 16th century source published only in 1625, it is set in the 13th century reign of Henry III and deals with the early life of the man who was to become Edward I, a.k.a. Longshanks, and historically, who married Eleanor of Castile when he was 14 and she was 13. It was one of those marriages. In Green's play, this marriage is delayed 
as Edward Dally's with Margaret, the fictional fair maid of Freshingfield, whose name I love saying, and Friar Bacon, the historical Roger Bacon, Friar Bungay, and Vandermoss as they hold their magical contests. It's worth noting first how many <clears throat> simple content elements tie this play to others produced near it in time, though not all of them at the Rose. It is often linked, of course, to Marlowe's Dr. Faustus by its concern with magic. But Peel's Longshanks, probably a 1592 play, another comic history, depicts the later, the later reign of Edward, including his conquest of Wales and his actual marriage to Eleanor of Castile, she whom the earth swallows and then disgorges at Charing Cross. Again, one of those details we love. Marlowe's Edward II, also 1592, dramatizes the brief and tragic reign of Longshank's son, and then Edward III, published 1596, but probably performed in 1593, dramatizes the reign of Longshank's grandson, including his wars with the Scots and with France. Clearly, around 1592, the early Edwards were having a moment on early English stages. But while these plays share a concern with a particular period of English history, they approach it very differently. We're more used to thinking of Edward II with its roots in Hollandshed and its recognizably tragic frame as a history play, just as the martial frame that shapes much of Edward III makes it easy for us to join that kid Shakespeare amalgam to others of Shakespeare's English histories from Henry VI to Henry V. But the romance elements that infiltrate the other works, including what we now think of Shakespeare's part of Edward III, the Countess of Salisbury love affair, were, I argue, simply one other way to give shape and lively interest to staged history in this period. To mark them as out of bounds for an historical drama is to misapprehend some of what made historical plays so popular in the 1590s. One of those pleasures was, I will argue, the rehearsing of a prince's erotic education, uh, such as that undergone by Green's Edward. Let me focus for a moment on how the first two acts of Edward III, another play of uncertain provenance, shows intertheatrical links with this stage tradition. Melchiori and others think the play was at some point held by Shakespeare's men, some of the personnel and company of, uh, and repertory of which ended up with the Chamberlain's men. Other Shakespeare plays followed a similar route of transmission, lending circumstantial weight to the hypothesis that within this intertwined network of early companies, Shakespeare might have had occasion to contribute to Edward III. What he contributed is now, to me, convincingly determined to have been the three scenes involving the Countess of Salisbury, and perhaps some of those, including the victories of the Black Prince in Act IV. The Salisbury scenes, drawing loosely on a story in Painter's Palace of Pleasure, depict a king who loses his laser focus on foreign wars because, although himself married, as is the Countess, becomes suddenly infatuated with her and falls into a militarily counterproductive funk. A woman of impeccable virtue, the Countess doesn't succumb to his blandishments and threatens to kill herself rather than sleep with him. Edward only abandons his ill-advised infatuation when his son, the Black Prince, arrives in Scotland to press the case for a quick invasion of France. Looking at his son's face, Edward sees the visage of his own wife, Queen Philippa, and shamed by his remembrance of her, suddenly renounces his passion for the Countess, leaves Scotland, 
and goes to France to fulfill his military duties there. And the last three acts of that play look a lot like Henry VI or Henry V. Now I'm suggesting, of course, that the reform of a Christian prince motif or meme had become a recognizable intertheatrical element of early 1590s historical drama, largely because of a comic history performed at the Rose, like Friar Bacon, in which a king or prince is overcome with foolish sexual desire that must be vanquished. The monarch's sexual desire must be redirected toward an appropriate dynastic mate, an action that also incorporates him into a homosocial network of male peers, advisors, and allies. Often, as in Friar Bacon, the moment of reversal is presented as a kind of conversion, as it is in Edward III. In scene six, after Margaret and Lacey, Edward's bosom friend with whom Margaret has fallen in love, vie with one another to die in order to spare the other punishment, Edward suddenly says, Edward, art thou that famous Prince of Wales who at Damasco beat the Saracens and broughtest home triumph on thy lance's point? And shall thy plumes be pulled by Venus down? Is it princely to dissever lovers' leagues to put such friends as glory in their loves, to part such friends as glory in their loves? Leave Ned and make a virtue of this fault, and further pagan lacy in their loves, and so, subduing fancy's passion, off he goes to France. This quite nicely takes us to the moment when Edward looks into the face of the black prince and seeing his wife there, suddenly renounces his adulterous intentions and head for France, reunited with his son and male peers. One can discern the long tale of this intertheatrical meme even in the later Henriad, which we should remember, unlike Richard III or Richard II, also follows a comic arc. The deep structure of those plays, well known to be indebted to the famous victories, is also informed by the theatrical pattern I have just identified in the comic histories and in Edward III for how to stage the education of a prince. As in them, Shakespeare's royal protagonist must also leave his feckless ways and acquire a proper dynastic wife, in this case, the French princess, Catherine of France. But as in the comic histories, Hal must end a dangerous infatuation before he can wed a right and begin a successful reign. Shakespeare's innovation, however, was to make that infatuation center not on a virtuous woman, but a vice-ridden, charismatic older man. Whether we see the tavern world as homosocial or homoerotic, Falstaff hold on Hal has to be broken before the younger king can establish ties with the right kind of homosocial community, his counselors, the Lord Chief Justice, the peers of England, and his brothers, the very actors he embraces just moments before he converts, publicly throws off Falstaff, and prepares, like Edward, for the Continental Wars in which he will win and woo the French princess. His conversion stage, he embraces his future. And so the whirly gig of imitation and innovation continues inside the community of practice that was the early modern theater world. Four, brief conclusion. <clears throat> I've been arguing in this paper for a certain approach to theatrical world of the 1590s. I love the new theater history with its energetic exploration of all the agents, including women, involved in the mounting of plays, its exploration of specific repertories and of specific stages and of the many kinds of authorial collaboration that made plays richly hybrid creations. But perhaps we are still holding on a little too tightly 
to somewhat anachronistic ideas of authors and repertories and genres as having an, an autonomy and unity they did not really possess, especially in the late 1580s and early parts of the 1590s, when the Rose was one of the premier stages of early modern England and the community of practice that sprang up to sustain this new theater industry was remarkably fluid and interactive. Most theater property was held in common, particularly those inter-theatrical elements identified by Will West that belonged to no one, but that traveled from dramatist to dramatist, play to play, theater to theater, the building blocks alike of an audience's theatrical literacy and a writer's compositional and collaborative success. If you were signed in the parceling out of the parts of a plot to compose and you were told to do the bit about the prince giving over the wrong love object for the right one, you sort of knew what was required, just as you knew how to write lines for an eastern tyrant, how to indicate a ravished woman, or how to mime madness. I've been making an additional argument here about the capaciousness of historical drama during this period of intense experimentation. It embraced much, much more than Marlowe's Edward II and Shakespeare's two tetralogies. It was a dispersed field of discernible subgenres. Playing history at the Rose clearly meant staging many kinds of historical matters, and some of the conventions that structured those diverse plays were not initiated at the Rose, but were carried there, and from thence were carried to other theaters and other troops. The community of practice was too itinerant and interconnected for it to be otherwise. But I have not focused much in this paper on the final word of my title, playing. If what was unique about the Rose was not the uniformity of historical plays performed there, but rather their diversity, a second unique feature was the conditions under which they were performed. Accounts of the Rose, both before and after its 1592 renovation, stress the intimacy of the space and the relative smallness and odd shape of its stage. Frank Waitley talked about that this morning. Gurr estimates that even the expanded stage was still significantly smaller than those found at other London theaters, and that the enlarged building holding between 2,000 and 2,400 people at capacity held fewer than at rival theaters. The size of the Fortune stage to which Henslow moved when the Chamberlain's men built the Globe was twice as large as the stage at the Rose. It's hard, perhaps, to think of some of the most geographically and rhetorically expansive plays of the period, the Spanish tragedy, Tamburlaine, the Battle of Alcazar, being launched on a relatively cramped physical platform. Yet as Brian Walsh has reminded us, staging conditions that can seem at first glance a disadvantage may actually enable striking effects. He persuasively argues that an early mark of Queensmen's history plays, which had to be imagined for staging at a variety of venues across the country because they were primarily a traveling troupe, um, that a mark of these plays was their intimacy with their audiences, full of frame devices and prologues that situated their audiences in relation to the action, and graced with clowns, Bully Thumbrell and Derrick among others, who often English the action in faraway places and spoke directly and intimately to the audience. Queen's Men Histories achieves, he argued, a particularly intimate and interactive relationship to their spectators. Perhaps the physical space of the Rose made possible a similar intimacy. 
I've suggested that even when a theater company came to have a distinctive repertory, as seems to have been true in particular cases, that repertory was never simply original to that company or ever fully separable from the larger theater culture and the community of practice around it. But that does not mean that particular venues did not affect how audiences experienced intertheatrical elements there that they had encountered elsewhere. The one Shakespeare history we know to have been staged at the Globe, the collaboratively written One Henry VI, contains many scenes that would have had a special effectiveness on the Rose stage. I'm thinking, for example, of those involving Talbot and his sons in Act Four. On the stage of the Rose, the sense of claustrophobic enclosure as the Talbots take their last stand would have been heightened, both because of the press of auditors around the stage, but also because of the foreshortened space in which the two armies could clash. Repeatedly in Act Four, alarms sound, excursions fill the stage, opposed swords flash, but then repeatedly the stage clears for one of several moments of semi-privacy in which the audience sees Talbot begging with his son to flee the, to flee the, the battle, and then finally holding that dead son in his arms. Singled out by Nash as exemplifying the way an English history could play on the heartstrings and enhance the patriotic stirrings of its auditors, Talbot's every action seemed to have moved the spectators. Was that partly because at the Rose, the audience would have been unusually close physically to both the triumphant and the dying Talbot, and fully aware of the awful press of bodies in which he was finally brought down? On the Rose stage, that moment, and you feel this contraction and expansion in that Act Four, would have resonated ironically back toward the Countess of Auvergne scene in which, on a nearly empty stage, Talbot faced another kind of hidden enemy alone, but then sounds his horn and is encompassed round by a band of his own soldiers, breaking from the trap that had been set for him. But at Bordeaux, no horn sounds and no rescue arrives from the squabbling English peers. The French part of um, Henry VI, the part that focused on the military struggle to retain English, England's French territories, is kinetically motivated by swarming armies retreating and coming again over the walls of Rouen, Orléans, through the gates, converging on cities, retreating, until all of that ends at Bordeaux, a stillness quite unlike the relative stasis of most of the talky scenes set in England, where the whole point is that nothing happens but indecision, bickering, and the dividing of roses in a garden. This is in marked contrast to the theatrical action orientation in France, the energy of a national power striving to retain its patrimony. I think all of this would have played very effectively on the restricted platform of the Rose stage, drawing the audience intimately into the struggles and suffering of Talbot and his men, increasing frustration with English decision and stasis at home. Playing history at the Rose then surely had its own particular effectiveness in each of the many subgenres in which it took performative shape. Thank you. Uh, with Jean's agreement to um, change convention and have questions. <laughs> so would I like can always use help. 
could I start off by asking yes. somebody who's been burning here? Okay. When you were talking about, I was thinking about what, what you've moved on to and the idea of the, bo oh, sorry. The, bod the body politic was uh -huh. what I wanted to focus on. Oh. And the idea with, that you ended up with, with Talbot, as drawing tears from the, the audience. Right. Is the body politic kind of linked to the community of practice? And does it have to have a kind of head? Does it have to have a star performer? I don't think it has to have a star performer. I think with Talbot it did and yeah. Nash pulled that out. But there is there's a, just an analogy between what happens in the theater when a collectivity forms around a theatrical event. Yeah. And there is something like a body to that moment. I wouldn't want to go too far in saying that's really like a body politic writ large. But there is something like a theatrical body that includes actors and audience. And that sometimes happens. And I think that's what Nash was describing happened around in the theater sometimes when the Talbot Scene scenes yeah. were performed, you know, all of them. Yes. Um, my question's really about um, influences of, uh, of Holinshed uh, and the earlier plays uh, on uh, uh, these historical plays outside of um, uh, Edward the Second and the Shakespearean yep. histories. Yep. Is, um, what role does uh, Holinshed <coughs> play in that sort of wider um, canon of history plays? In, in not so, not so plays? much, obviously, as he does for like the Henriad or the Henry the Sixth plays, but we know that you know, like Lear is a story from Hollandshed, and there are parts of Hollandshed we don't pay much attention to. You know, the Arden of Faversham story is embedded in Hollandshed. So it's not that Hollandshed becomes irrelevant for those plays, but it's not the major source anymore. The major sources are things like London Chronicles, you know, which aren't Hollandsheds, um, or romance uh, or popular culture. Um, you know, there are different kinds of sources, most of which we wouldn't credit now as fully historical, you know, and the matter of Britain often comes out of, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth and what we now consider pseudo-histories. I'm just saying that for the stage, this large compartment of texts and ways of thinking about histories was available, and they used it. And it wasn't just Hollandshed and Hall, um, or more or whatnot that you know provided them with their matter for writing what they called historical plays. So is there something peculiar to Shakespeare and Marlowe in their um, reliance on Holland Shed as a source text, do you think? Or I think um, I would say that Shakespeare is more reliant on those texts than others. And we know so much about Holland Shed and his relationship to these plays, in part because we know so much about Shakespeare. It's such an industry that we think that everything must have come from Hollandshed to Shakespeare. And yet there are all these other plays that um, come from other places. Uh, I wonder about, about communities of practice. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about ballads. Uh, ballads? King, ballads, kings and commoners. So you, uh -huh. you were talking about Bacon and Bungay sort of influencing a theatrical uh -huh. tradition later. But uh, <coughs> can, we, can we expand the community of practice to... To make ballad makers part well, of Well, ballad makers, you know, Kemp and Tarleton are ballad makers for a Absolutely. start. Absolutely. You know. So do, do we go back to an originating, as it were, play, or do, or do we have to make, make it a larger community, including you know, outside the theatres and other groups? Well, well, I would say that theatre 
writers for the theater and actors and singers for the theater had to be in contact with ballad makers and ballad writers. I think there's no doubt about that. There are lots of ballads in these plays and ballad stories get on the stage, right? So there was a conversation. But I'm talking about literally the people who in some way made a play. And ballad makers writing in Lancashire weren't directly part of that. That doesn't mean that people who did work on a play didn't know that stuff. Even some didn't even knew some of those people who produced it. But the community of practice I'm trying to designate is those who would immediately be involved. That is, those who wrote, those who made costumes, those who did props, you know, those who uh, acted in particular, those who sang, those who played musical instruments. You know, they, those are all, and, and then the audience has to be theorized as part of that. Because without them, it doesn't work, you know. I think they would sometimes not know. That's what I. I think that sometimes they would not know whether yeah. they were going to get something so that was. They have thought that the merchant of Venice was a historical figure. I don't. Comical history of the merchant. I don't know whether they would have thought they were going to see a historical figure. The word history is, in other words, was it's elastic. In, in Absolutely. At that time than it is now. It could be surely simply a story. It does, and that's the like the second definition of the OED is that it's just a story. But I think that there are a lot of titles that use um, history as story, which really does mean history in our sense of having something to do with the past and something to do with a non-feigned event. So it's a contested word. But historical matter is really what these the typography I'm constructing is about, the different kinds of historical matter, and then the different kinds of dramatic shape it could take. As we all know, it can move tragically, it can move satirically, and it can move comically. At least. Probably other ways I haven't imagined. That is not something I had thought about, but which is really smart. Yes, of course. Um, that's part of the common inheritance. Um, and the Marlovian line is part of that inheritance, but so is the Shakespearean you know, pentameter. Um, there are, yes, of course, there are shared linguistic uh, properties that are developed on the stage um, and handed on. Shakespearean or Marlowe play, <laughs> which one 
would it be? <laughs> well, it could be something like, um, hmm, I'm trying to think of the play with the biggest buffoon in it, and that's hard to think. I'm not sure. He's so unspeakable. I was thinking mostly about theater and not about mass entertainment. Um, and I was thinking very simplistically about the fact that most plays now have single authors and most plays now have directors that control the major decisions of a production. And those things don't seem to me to be true for the early modern theater. But you're right, there's an enormous amount of sharing, shared culture uh, now, especially digitally, where and Hollywood, uh, of course. Small chunk. I know. It's an important chunk to me, but it's very small. I agree. <laughs> Purposes, for the purposes of this um, investigation, I am, and I'm looking at those things that are held in common and would be mostly beneath the radar screen of a surveillance apparatus. But I'll also say that um, I do think the plays are political, but m most of them are not political. Most early modern plays are not political in a way that gets caught in the surveillance network. Political drama in the mid-16th century was much more political than it became in the 1590s when you have a true entertainment industry. This doesn't mean they weren't ideologically important, but not in the ways that would become caught up in a surveillance network. You know, the um, game of chess and other plays that actually get censored and or actually become cause celebres are really tiny in the period. So I'm not one of those who spends a lot of time thinking about um, political 
uh, patrons' protection. I mean, I don't believe Macmillan and uh, McLean, for example, on the way the Queen's Men repertory supposedly was a politically oriented repertory. I believe many other things they say, but I don't, I'm not convinced by that argument. So I think maybe you and I might differ on how important all that was. But that's not really what I'm taking up here. Well, the follow-up yeah. would be, do you have any evidence of Shakespeare being particularly involved with the network? I mean, the odd thing is that he has so little connection with other people. There's no sign of any writings from one writer to another, etc. So what is the evidence, if you like, of that community impacting on Shakespeare, other than, of course, kind of arguing backwards his communities, if anything, were business communities. I mean, every single documented interaction is with business associates, property dealings, usury, and so on. So where's the actual evidence for that internal community having so much effect on the way that he wrote? Well, I'd say there were two bits of evidence. One is the way, let's just say he worked differently with the clowns in his company from the earlier to the mid-career. He was clearly writing some of his parts in relationship to the personnel he had at hand. And so he wasn't writing without an awareness of his own company. And then we know in the, throughout the 1590s that he was writing in relationship to people like Marlowe. We've heard about that today. Um, I have to say people like Chapman. I mean, in his humorous plays. Uh, he was in conversation with people outside his own company. He was certainly in conversation with everybody who was within his company. And, um, I, you know, we don't see that because we think of him as a genius who produced everything out of his gut, but it wasn't true. <laughs> could, could I just follow up that last question by raising a, a word that's hardly been mentioned? Um, that would have been 10 years ago all the time, during the entire day, the word is, is religion. And um, uh, it, it seems to me that uh, you know, much of the most interesting work 10 years ago was being done on the different religious complexion of companies. Very noticeable at the, in the division of the kingdom, Prince Henry's men, the king's men, the queen's men have a very different religious complexion to their repertoires. So I wondered whether, whether you, you could comment on the as it were, not ideological, but religious dimension of the competition between, say, strangers men and advanced men, especially in the context of um, a religious culture where there is great pressure to reform it altogether from the Puritan side. Um, I think, Richard, you could do that better than I can. <laughs> I, and I am perfectly serious about that. That's your patch of ground. That's not my patch of ground. <laughs> okay, well, should we join together in <laughs>